Well, it's really great to see your faces tonight, those who were able to join us in this unique format. Been in much prayer over each of you and your families, those who are connected to our family. Thankful for those who uh, are serving on the front lines uh, in emergency and health care and transport and the different things that are happening. I know we even have some on duty tonight. Uh, What a joy it is to get to do this on this special night. Church, tonight we gather to reflect on the darkest day in history. The irony is that we look back on it and we call it good. It's ironic because the greatest crime in human history is also the greatest act of love and grace in human history. May the result of our time together in God's Word tonight cause each of us to surely and truly call it good. I pray that our time in God's Word helps you to consider mankind's depth of sin and desperate need for the Savior. I want to encourage you to grab your Bibles and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Numbers. Numbers is the fourth book of your, in your Bible, and as we prepare to dive into God's Word, let us submit ourselves to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy will, your presence to sustain us, to to gather us, to provide this opportunity and these means, whether with the technology and the internet, the online feed, or the ability for these cars to run and for us to, to be able to be here. We thank you for the opportunity to, to look to your holy word, that we have it in our language, that we can study it and know you, the living God. We can know truth and wisdom to combat the lies and the deception and the darkness that fills this fallen world. We're desperate, Lord, for your truth, for your revelation tonight through your written word, that we would be faithful not only in its preaching but in our, in our listening. The Holy Spirit would give us discernment and we would grow and mature in our faith and our faithfulness to you. We love you. We worship you. We call upon you now to do your mighty work in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Numbers chapter 5, verse 1 through 4 says this, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel. And they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or has a discharge, everyone who is unclean, through contact with the dead. You shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp, that they may not defile their camp in the midst of which I dwell. And the people of Israel did so, and put them outside the camp. As the Lord said to Moses, so the people of Israel did. 
Can you imagine what it was like for those who are a part of God's favored nation to have contracted a disease, to have a discharge, or to have come into contact with a person who may have died, maybe a loved one, and God's instruction is that you are to be put out of the camp. Our first impression of this is that it might even feel a little bit unloving. But praise God for all that He does that is perfect and holy, even when it doesn't make sense to us. For the things that sometimes seem unjust to us can often be filled with more justice than we could ever realize. Things that can seem unloving often end up equally in love on a level we've never known. And most importantly, things that seem to diminish the worthiness of God, but end up elevating His glory and exaltation to heights that we've never known or seen or understood. I want to highlight three reasons for this commandment tonight. I'm blessed by the faithful pastors and theologians that have come before me that have written and taught on the different facets of Scripture, particularly related to this text, the late reformer John Calvin, and a number of years ago, Pastor Legan Duncan, who have blessed me with some of the framework for this passage that I have found very beneficial to my soul. I want to share some of that framework with you tonight, as well as the fruit of my own study in this topic, God's Word. The framework is this. There's three focus on this command, reasons for it, I want us to see a practical reason, a theological reason, and a Christological reason. First, let's look and consider the practical reason for this command. Frankly, this one's pretty easy, especially when you consider the fact that back then there was no antibiotics, no fancy hospitals built for high-grade medical quarantine and care of such infectious disease. Therefore, those who contracted these things would have infected hundreds, if not thousands, of people if not properly quarantined. So it is God in His kindness and shepherd care whereby He relegates the defiled to be put outside the camp in order to protect all of the rest of the population. This is, at its core, simply practical love and protection for others. It is amazing how relevant and applicable this is all of a sudden for us who are living during this COVID-19 pandemic in the year 2020. A month ago, I got the flu and was fighting a high fever, terrible body aches and cough. So I had to be quarantined to my bedroom away from my beloved wife and children for four days until my fever broke. But others who are fighting COVID-19 are having to do far more. One of our dear family members is on the back end of a two-week quarantine from her husband and daughter as she fights the virus. I will tell you that 14 days is way more than four days. In other situations, elderly or high-risk family members have had to be relocated from their homes to avoid exposure. We do this 
to protect those who are not sick, those we love. We do this because it's loving and kind. What a time we are in, church. Maybe the first time in a hundred years since the First Baptist Church of Bakersfield has not met in person for a Sunday gathering since the Spanish flu of 1918 to 1920. May God do His work and use us for His purposes in this time. In the end, we get the practical reason for this prescription for the Lord to put the highly contagious infected outside the camp. But there's also a theological reason for this command. The theological reason is threefold. Number one, God is holy. Number two, God is present. And number three, because God is holy and present, those who are defiled are separated. Let's look at these more closely for a moment. Number one, God is holy. Numbers 5.3, you shall put out both male and female, put them outside the camp, that they may not defile their camp in the midst of which I dwell. The defilement laws and numbers in Deuteronomy highlight again and again the need for a holy God to be separated from those who are defiled. The holiness of God cannot be in communion with unclean people. Realize the very nature of the disease is rooted in sin. It is ultimately because of sin at work in our fallen world that people get sick and infected and die. This highlights the holy set-apartness of God, who is pure and righteous and perfectly complete, lacking nothing. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 2, There is none holy like the Lord. Psalm chapter 5, verse 4, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. God is holy and therefore cannot and will not be in fellowship or harmony with that which is evil or defiled in sin. Number two, God is present. Exodus chapter 29, 44-46 says this, I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priest. I will dwell among the people of Israel and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. God is present, church, in the middle of the camp, and therefore cannot be in fellowship or harmony with that which is evil or defiled in sin. Because God is holy and present, those who are defiled are separated from Him. The problem is, we are all defiled. Defiled is to be unclean, dirty, stained, foul, polluted. The Bible says that because of our sin, we are defiled. We are wicked, stained, unclean, and impure. 
The word of God is deadly serious when it comes to what is to be done with those who are defiled, not just in this life, but in eternity. Revelation 21, verse 8, As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, for the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all the liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Here we see an eternal picture of what our defilement means to our communion with God if we remain in unrepentant sin. This goes back to the very beginning of sin in the world. Adam and Eve were excluded from the Garden of Eden because of their sin. They were excluded from the joy of unhindered fellowship with God. Genesis 3.24, he drove them out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Here we see the sword of eternal justice. The only way back to God is to pay the ultimate price and go under the sword. We'll speak more to this later. Now, if you are here today and you think that somehow you have figured out a way to clean yourself up from your defilement, that you might be good enough, the Bible says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.10-12, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. If you are here today and you think you might be able to figure out a way back to God and good standing with God, the Bible says the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Romans 8, verse 7. The very real truth is we don't measure up to our holy God because of our vile sin. We cannot clean ourselves up in order to restore ourselves to a right standing with God. This leaves us with a big problem. Praise God for the Christological reason for this command. I bring you good news tonight. God has, has had a plan from before time to save a people, a people of every tribe, tongue, and nation from our defilement and separation from Him. It's a plan that when finished, would give us reason to forever praise Him for His love and glorious grace. When the first sin separated and defiled man from God, God declared war and victory on Satan and sin and death with what is known as the Proto-Evangelion. The first gospel pronouncement is found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. In it, God declares He would rise up a man, born a woman, a royal redeemer who would crush and defeat sin and death. From that day, mankind has been desperate for the promised redeemer. Floundering in sin, lacking the ability to fulfill God's righteous commands and covenants, lacking the ability to contend with contagious diseases and the league of sin in this world. And then he arrived. Turn with me to the New Testament. Back to the Gospel of Matthew where I read earlier. 
Matthew chapter 1, 20 through 21, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. The Messiah was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary, and he who was to be named Jesus, Yeshua, Yahweh, saves. Why? Because just as God promised from the beginning at the fall, he would send a redeemer, born of woman, to defeat sin and death for his people. He would save them from their sins. Turn with me a couple books to the right, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5. Before I read, you need to understand what being put out of the camp meant for those stricken with highly contagious sickness, especially when it meant they didn't die right away, but lived day and night with their disease. They were outcast. They were despised, avoided, therefore lonely and miserable people. Elder Rob, myself, Scott Waterman, along with some others, got to take a trip in 2013 to Vietnam. And one of the unique parts of that trip was to get to drive into the countryside outside of the city of Saigon to a place removed from civilization where lepers lived. Lepers who have had the disease for many years have been treated, no longer suffering the consequences of their leprosy to make their body essentially fall apart, not contagious any longer. But the society, even in a modern day with modern medicine, still rejects them, ostracizes them to stay away. We are blessed to get to bring them wheelchairs to help them move around, for they didn't have feet or hands or legs or arms give them mobility to share the gospel with them, to love them and pray for them. It was a joy. It was a privilege. But understand, you avoided highly contagious, infectious people. Lepers at all cost, especially in the day of Jesus. So consider that while I read this. Luke chapter 5, 12 through 13. While he, Jesus, was in one of the cities there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, can you make me clean? And Jesus stretched out his hand. Can you imagine all of the Hebrew people who knew the Old Testament instruction of the Lord to put away highly contagious people out of the camp, watching Jesus stretch out his hand to this leprous man, Yelling, don't touch him. Because you will become unclean. But verse 13 shows us, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. <clears throat> Wait, what? Jesus didn't get sick. Even more amazing, the sick man immediately got well. Who is this man who heals the sick? Who is this man who is 
in no way unclean, but goes outside the royal camp of his heavenly throne to show mercy and favor to the diseased, the dead, the outcast. This is the Son of God, the promised Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. This is in between Matthew and Luke. Look with me at Mark chapter 7. Because we must see what Jesus is doing in all of this healing. Like you are asking the question maybe in your mind, if God is able to heal those infected that are cast out of the camp back in the Old Testament, in Numbers, why not, why not them? And why these people instead? And how limited, once again, our perspective is when contemplating the hand of God in the world. Whether it be leprosy, or whether it be a worldwide pandemic of the virus COVID-19. Oh, how naive we are to the wisdom and the knowledge of our great God and His perfect will. First, we must see that Jesus did not just come to heal a man's temporary and physical sickness and defilement. <clears throat> the priority of God is not the temporary life and kingdom that we often make it to be. No, his primary agenda in all things is his eternal glory and the establishment of his eternal kingdom and saving his people unto eternal life. Everything else is a means to this end. In our sin, in our limited perspective, we can really struggle with this. But in Christ, and with Scripture informing us, we can begin to see and embrace the will and the work of God in all these things. Look with me, Mark chapter 7, verse 32 through 35. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Epaphtha, now this, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Did you notice when healing the man, Jesus sighs before he calls out his command of healing? This is so easy to miss. Here the word used for sigh signifies something related to, to pain. Something Jesus is thinking of or feeling in this moment. His fleshly nature. In, in, in verse 32, Mark uses a Greek word for speech. It's only used in one other part of Holy Scripture. It's found in Isaiah. This word is very rare. Likely Mark had it in his mind. The word used is found in Isaiah 35, 3-6. Be strong, fear not, it says. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and a recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And, they shall, and then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Why did Jesus sigh as he heals this man? I believe it's because he knew that he came 
not just to heal temporary problems, but our eternal problems, to be a substitute, to be the sacrificial lamb in our place. Jesus would substitute himself to take on our blindness and our deafness, our disease, our hardship, that we could live with the king in the camp forever. We are the deaf who in Christ have had our ears uncovered. We are the blind who in Christ can now see. We are the mute who in Christ are now shouting for joy. Jesus is not bringing divine vengeance. He's going to bear the divine vengeance on our behalf. He becomes the victim and we get the reward. All of this points to the ultimate purpose of Jesus' life and eventually his death and resurrection. The question tonight is how will you respond to the substitution, the sacrifice of Jesus? Will you respond with pride that says, No, I don't need Jesus, I'll make my own victory? Do you respond with self-loathing? Maybe thinking, I'm too wicked. My stuff's too dark to be saved. This one's pretty real. Often, you might feel buried under your defilement. Begin to think that there's no one who would touch this wickedness. And then, even in your utter surprise, as you see Jesus reaching his hand towards you, you still try to hide, say, no, no, not that defilement. That's my shame. I don't want anyone to see that, to bring that into the light. Some of you are so trapped with fear of being exposed and shamed. You, You miss that Jesus comes to take your shame on, on the cross, in his nakedness, in his shame. So instead of us being exposed, we're healed. Don't miss this point. It's very common for many who, who would even claim Jesus as Savior and Lord, who, who might get what the Bible teaches on many different topics, who might go so far to say they love Jesus and what He's done for them. <clears throat> when it comes to sin truly being exposed, when you see your failing in your performance or in your perspective, there's a fight to trust Jesus and His finished work on your behalf because you're still maybe in a position of clinging to some self-salvation. Hear me tonight. It won't work. You'll never dig out of that hole. You must be completely and utterly dependent on Jesus, trusting His completed work on your behalf. You bring nothing. And your faith is not just a start. It is. It must be lived out daily as you die to self and live in Christ in all things. We can respond with pride. We can respond with self-loathing. Or we can respond with humble engagement. This is believing the truth about your spiritual deadness, the fact that you're desperate for the power and the grace of God that Jesus gives on your behalf. Look with me at the part of Mark 7, that is verse 24 through 30. Another testimony from, 
From there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had become unclean spirit heard of him and, and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, Syrophoenician by birth, and she began, she begged him to, to cast the demon out of her daughter, and, and he said to her, let the, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way, the demon has left your daughter And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Jesus is highlighting first here that he would minister to the Jewish people and then to the Gentiles. But in addition, Jesus is highlighting a reality for just how far off the Gentiles were viewed in comparison to the Jews. Speaking of them this way, verse 27, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. See with me, though, her response. Instead of being offended or full of pride, being a Gentile, or full of shame, she understands she doesn't deserve his grace. But that she understands it is grace. She answered him, yes, Lord. Even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. The woman's response is the very response we must have to the gospel. Recognizing we're not worthy on any level. In fact, we're more wicked and sinful than we even know. But at the same time, Jesus us with grace to, to heal us when we didn't deserve it. She didn't say in pride, how dare you? turning the attention and the blame on him. No, like we often do when confronted with the fullness of sin, she's humble. Neither does she overreact or cower to the corner, tail between her legs in self-loathing or just imploding in shame, thinking I'm too broken, I'm too wretched to be fixed. She receives grace. She sees her sin and disgust and at the same time takes hold of Jesus' saving grace. We need this kind of faith. We need to have this response to the gospel that we're hearing today. We need this kind of humble and yet engaged approach to God's saving grace. He says to her, for this statement, you may go your way, the demon has left your daughter. What good news. He responds to her faith, to her humility, receiving the gospel news. The child is cast out away from the table without a crumb so that those who were dogs could be brought in and adopted as children of God. Did you catch that? The child, the son of God, Jesus, is cast away from the table without a crumb. He goes to the cross, tumbled, so that those who are dogs, that's you and me, could be brought in and adopted as children of God and be saved. 
We must understand tonight how Jesus does this. The final place I want to ask you to turn is Hebrews chapter 13 in your New Testament. I want to look at a few different texts here in a few different spots. We'll start in, verse, in chapter 13. In verse 11, and in this, we're reminded of the substitution. First, the temporary substitution of the old covenant. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. Where do those that are defiled go outside the camp? Where do the bodies of the animals whose blood was shed on behalf of sinners go outside the camp? So what must be done if we are to be healed and forgiven and restored? Blood must be shed. Hebrews chapter 9, 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. The old covenant system, the animal dies as a substitute in the place of the sinful people at the hands of the high priest and then is burned outside the camp. But no, not any blood would do. Not, not for our forgiveness, not for our eternal relationship with God. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, For it is impossible for the blood of goats and bulls to take away sins. We must have a better sacrifice. If our past, present, and future sin would be forgiven so that we could be brought into fellowship with the holy God, the most vile, the worst of our sin, Needs a better sacrifice. This is what Jesus came to do. Hebrews 13, 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Did you hear it? Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Where does Jesus go to substitute himself as the eternal sacrifice on behalf of sinners? Outside the camp. Hebrews 2.17, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. We call this penal substitutionary atonement. Jesus Christ paid the penalty due our sin to substitute himself in our place to reconcile us to God. He suffered. He died physically. He died the death we deserve. He died to pay the penalty for our sins because the wages of our sin is death. It's what it deserves. It's what it's earned. And not any blood would do. Only one. Only the pure, holy blood of God the Son in flesh, Jesus Christ. Hear the gospel so clearly in Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. My death for his life, my sin for his righteousness, my condemnation for his salvation, my failure for his success, my defeat for his victory. 1 Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins 
in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. This is the great substitution of Christ. The atonement he makes on behalf of sinners. The death of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. The declaration. To declare completion of his substitution, Jesus cried out from the cross, It is finished. John 19, verse 30. Jesus Christ died for us sinners, and it was finished. He was sent out of the camp so that we could be brought in. Some of you have been told that after Jesus' death, he went to hell, that he suffered there three days, tormented by Satan and demons. He didn't. It was finished on the cross. It was done. Hear me tonight. It is finished. Jesus did what was needed, and he did it to to absolute completion. To say that your sin is too wicked, that your darkness too vile, is to say and declare the blood of God the Son is not good enough to cover your worst. To say that something else must be done is to deny the perfect and completed work of Christ on your behalf. Church, we rest in this. Jesus did all that was needed so that we could be healed, so that we could be brought in and made new in Him and be with God forever. I pray that tonight God is making the testimony of what Christ did on our behalf, on behalf of undeserving sinners like you and me. I pray that it's wrecking you. I pray that you see so clearly and fully that you truly and totally submit to Christ. That you lay down your life, your deadly doing, your failed attempt to overcome your own, and you humbly trust Jesus with all of your life. That you see that you are no longer defiled or defined by your sin. But you are forgiven and made new. That you no longer live out of the old self. But you start to truly live out of the new. There is only one way to overcome your defilement and separation. Only one way to be brought near to be brought into true and lasting fellowship with God and His people, and that is to repent and believe in Jesus alone, to trust your life to Him as Savior and Lord. What is so good about God saving us is that He then chooses to mobilize us. Look with me at Hebrews 13, 12-14 as we close. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate, in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, church, let us go to him outside the gate and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Any city, no matter its location, its grandeur, its resources, its political position, its financial status, its weather patterns, On this place, in this time, none of them will satisfy the citizens of God's kingdom. 
Why? Because we know deep down inside our home is not here. We're your sojourners. It doesn't say Christ died and then took us to heaven immediately. No, by God's perfect wisdom and plan, he sends us out of the camp to testify to others outside the camp that the one who went outside the camp to redeem the stricken and the defiled is the only way that they can return to eternal fellowship with God in the camp forever. Do you see it? Jesus gave up the city that was so that we could become citizens of the city to come making you and I salt and light to the city that is. Hebrews 13, 15, Through Him let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of the lips that acknowledge His name. And oh, what a way to finish on Good Friday. To slow and respond to the gospel with faith and with worship. We aim to worship God with all our hearts. To praise the Lamb who was slain on our behalf. The sacrifice that He made. The one who paid our debt and substituted Himself for what we could not do. So that we could be called children of God and forever reign with Him in His holy city. Through Him, we will continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God and acknowledge His name. Church, let's worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The Savior and Lord that sets us free. Oh, He's due our praise. Let's pray and then let's sing. Father, we thank You for this time in Your Word, this time to study these things that You have ordained to be in Your written Word. To grow, to be convicted, to be shaped that we would move in repentance. We would move in, in our inspiration to live each day for you and your glory. That we'd be motivated to risk, to, to love those, to go out of our way to love those who were once complete, just like us, that completely lost, dead in sin, desperate for the Savior. That in no way would we get comfortable In no way would we see this dwelling place in these times as our home. But that all of this is a journey, is an opportunity for service and testimony, disciple making, for your glory, for others' eternal good, and for our joy to get to be part of your family, to do this work, to to sing these truths. Oh God, we worship you tonight. We praise your holy name. Hear us as we sing and respond. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.